I have no concept of time anymore. I, I'm not, I don't know where, I barely know where I am. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 2nd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How you doing on this fine, almost spring morning? Yeah, it feels it feels March-like, and I'm excited about that, uh, <laughs> especially because the meaning of it and, and uh, the basketball that is contained in this month, fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully it won't be a repeat of last year. We'll get an no, actual March Madness. Don't, don't even mention the possibility. I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> I'm from Los Angeles. This is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. Welcome back. I was back last week. Yeah, we had we had the show We've last week. We've done a week. podcast already. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot you were back last week. God, you know, in my defense... I have no concept of time anymore. I, I'm not, I don't know where, I barely know where I am. Um, both wait. in time and space. Wait, do you, I thought you're just always in the car. That's, I mean, yes, don't you I just live, live there? Here. I live That's, in the car. You never leave. Yes. Yeah. That's how, oh, the yeah. only way I ever see you is in your car. So I just assume you're always there. Yeah. That's, that's accurate. It is Los Angeles. How, how's it going? <laughs> you doing okay? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the other thing in my defense is that it is quite early here. And, <laughs> you know, this is a little PSA for our listeners. Sometimes my brain's not quite working. So if you hear me say a dumb thing that, you know, I'll, I'm willing to blame it on that. Sometimes it starts working halfway through the show. Sometimes never. Sometimes If you, if you hear Jeff Today, say clearly, a dumb thing. forgetting a week, <laughs> not working. And I'm uh, sure the audience will um, take that into account when uh, listening. Yeah, I love it. Look, it's just information. It's more information before any judgments are cast. <laughs> oh, boy. On today's show, we'll talk about Tiger Woods, what the awful car accident he was in last week means for his legacy and his career. Then, as the All-Star game approaches, we'll check in on the NBA and if it looks like anyone can stop the Utah Jazz. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Wednesday, Tiger Woods was injured in a single vehicle crash in Los Angeles. He sustained severe injuries to both legs, and it's unclear what the extent of his recovery is going to be or what the timeline for his recovery will be. On ESPN Sports Center on the day of the accident, Scott Van Pelt reflected on what Tiger's career has meant to him and what the accident could mean for Tiger going forward. You just hope for the best. I mean, um, this is someone that... And he, he and I have joked my entire career that he's single-handedly responsible for it. And it's not a joke. I met him when he was a freshman at Stanford, and he became this, this rock star. And uh, I was lucky enough to be close enough to cover him and came to ESPN because I covered him. And um, over time, you get to know each other as people, and, and you, he becomes a dad and um, you know, becomes an old guy with a bald spot and a fused back, as I've talked about so many times, and becomes so much more relatable as a human uh, than he was when he was a 20-something-year-old Superman and, and was this, this superhero version of, of, of us. And so it's, um, it's just, it's odd, you know, Matt, when, when you, you feel so 
you know, personally connected to this story because you, you just want so badly for this person you know to be okay. I don't give a damn about the golf, I, you know? I, it, it's, it, it couldn't matter less. He gave, he gave us more than just about any other athlete we've seen in our, in, in our lives in terms of the moments that move you and make you feel. And so at this moment, uh, I don't find myself uh, at all concerned about uh, Augusta or anything else. I just think for him and for his children, I, I hope he's all right, man. That's, that's really it. Obviously, Tiger's health, that he's alive, is the most important part of this story. And obviously, we have no idea whether or not Tiger will ever come back to golf and play professionally again. But do you guys agree with Van Pelt that Tiger has given more than just about any other athlete? I think he's certainly in the conversation uh, just in terms of like the iconic moments that we all remember and, and giving of himself in terms of his battle through injuries. That's kind of been one of the dominant themes of his career and what it made it so special when he came back and actually won those tournaments and then won the Masters um, a couple years ago was just like, you you could see how much physically he he had left on the on the uh, the golf course and how much he had kind of sacrificed and and fought through the pain over the years. I mean, there's plenty of athletes that have done that too. Um, you know, you think about Serena Williams. We just talked about uh, her on the show. You know, she's fought through a lot of injuries and a lot of um, uh, things to keep her from from playing, and then made it back on the other side. So uh, you know, there's a lot of other athletes in that conversation, but Tiger is definitely like one of the greatest in. In terms of the caliber of athlete and then the the degree of just having to battle through injuries to to come back on the other side and, and play at a high level. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, golf's sort of gone through this evolution where, you know, for a long time, you know, they we kind of joked about how we only cared about Tiger, you know, like he they would show every single one of his shots in a tournament. And if he wasn't in the tournament, the interest would wane. And this was true, you know, like the ratings were much higher when he was involved. Um, But I, I feel like, you know, time's passed and we've seen that I think the sport's in a really good place. There's a lot of like really interesting, exciting young golfers. And, you know, he's not necessary to, provide all the excitement and the mm-hmm. interest. I mean, obviously still, you know, people would always be interested if he was involved. Look at the masters a couple of years ago. Um, but you know, he inspired a whole generation of players and like the game is actually, so we've had the actual game change in terms of how these guys are playing and how, you know, far they're hitting the ball. And a lot of that is, is tiger based. And I think he's, you know, attracted a lot of interest from athletes who might have played other sports and I think in in general you know he he has changed the sport I don't know how many players at least in my lifetime you could argue Michael Jordan have done that to his or her respective sport um to the degree to which Tiger has so yeah I I think it's a fair statement I mean it's a little hard to gauge I mean a lot of these guys have given their whole life I mean most pro golfers have given their whole life to golf but um in terms of sort of secondary impact and effects he's had on the sport, I, I think without a doubt. The, Tiger's last event on the PGA Tour was was the Masters in November, which is a weird thing to say. Um, but shortly after he played with his son Charlie in the PNC Championship in December, he underwent yet another surgery on his back, his, his fifth in seven years. And he has missed the tournament so far this calendar year in January and February. 
He had said during last week's Genesis Open that he was hoping to play the Masters in April. Jeff, what were we expecting from Woods at this point? Did you think he would maybe win another major? Yeah, probably. I mean, look, I've I've <laughs> learned my lesson. Even though I, I always kind of believed in him, you know, even when it, it looked pretty bad for a while, you know, not to count him out. But um, you combine the back surgeries with the fact that he's 45 and there's only a handful of guys. I mean, I don't think anyone since like Hal Irwin has won a major since they were at that age. It's, it's not very common. It's also really hard to win golf majors. I mean, Rory McIlroy hasn't won one in six years. And Rory McIlroy is like the best golfer on the planet, probably. Um, Jordan Spieth, you know, hasn't won one in five years. You know, it, it's not easy uh, to win majors. Yeah. So um, I wasn't, surely wasn't expecting it. But again, it wouldn't surprise me. I think we did have, I'm so fortunate we had that awesome Masters two years ago, which I certainly surprised everyone. I'm, I'm sort of curious about other athletes who have had major health issues like this, major injuries, and, you know, what kind of whether comebacks are possible. Neil, are there other athletes in golf and other sports that have come back from these kinds of huge injuries? Well, uh, Ben Hogan is the comparison that a lot of people have made. I think it's almost like too perfect of a comparison in the sense that they both got into car accidents uh, that that damaged their legs. And Hogan was able to, after like a very long, grueling process of uh, rehabilitation, come back and not just play, but like play really well and won three majors in a year after that. Um, and so I think that is kind of the template that people want to maybe see Tiger go down uh, that path when when he is, if he is capable of kind of, you know, going through rehab and, and wants to, because that's another thing. I mean, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, it's interesting because uh, Tiger, even through all of the, the back injuries and stuff like that, like he had made comments saying like, oh, I'm like a pretty far away from uh, playing. You know, I don't know how much I have uh, left in the tank, like comments even before the accident that sort of were tempering expectations in a way that maybe is a little un-Tiger Woods-like um, to, to hear. And that was before this. So I don't know. I, I, I think all of us are kind of speculating about whether... You know, if if he is physically capable uh, of of playing again, it seems like he'll try it. But at the same time, I don't think any of us would be surprised if this is you know sort of the the last cap on this you know really long path of injuries and everything that he's um, he's fought through. But uh, but beyond Hogan, I mean, like I said, Serena Williams has fought through uh, a lot of physical ailments uh, and still been dominant on the other side. I I, I hesitate to bring up hockey because uh, I know you hate that, Sarah. But Mario Lemieux comes to mind uh, as someone that you know uh, in the middle of his prime got cancer. Uh, he also had major back issues uh, to the point that he couldn't even tie his own skates uh he had to have someone else tie his skates and then he would go out and be the best player on the ice uh and so he came back after i think three years away from the game and uh in in 2000 and was instantly one of if uh, if not the most dominant players when when he played in the game so like there are examples of athletes kind of fighting through if you have that talent that never really goes away as long as you're physically capable of just performing the action of 
playing the sport. Uh, and so that's an argument that Tiger, if he's capable of walking around the course, and that was the thing for, for Ben Hogan, was sometimes he just didn't have the stamina anymore after the leg injuries to really even be able to kind of play a full round and, and make it uh, around the course. But when he hit the ball, he was same old Ben Hogan. Maybe that is sort of Tiger will pick his spots and only play the majors and which is kind of how he's always been in some way shape or form but you know go off of sponsor exemptions and be in the field and and try to win another major but like really really conserve himself um for for the tournament that matters the most yeah you know he was struggling in the masters in in november uh, you know to walk up and down and and I mean it, he he made a comment at the end that it was just it was hard on his body at that point which I think I think is interesting I'm not sure we always remember that golf is taxing physically in some ways I mean you know the way I play not so much where I'm mostly just driving the cart and just sort of giving up on <laughs> my ball somewhere in the rough. Um, Searching but, for a ball can be taxing. It can be. Um, <laughs> the way I do it to give up immediately is, is not super taxing. Um, but, but then you run the risk of running out of balls, which is always a concern for me, at least yeah. personally speaking. You know, I keep a, there's a whole compartment in my golf bag that's just old balls. Oh yeah, so. found balls. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> you gotta. So never run out. It's great. Yeah, um, anytime, <laughs> anytime I go into the woods, I'm, I like to come out with five or six balls. Yeah, right. <laughs> Probably not my ball, but I, you know, at least I, you know, got a sleeve or here of, of new balls. That's um, what I want for Tiger. You know, I want Tiger to have fun with golf it, someday. It's a shame. <laughs> you know, like, I again, I made the comment about how the golf is not important. The important thing is he's alive. And I, I think everyone agrees with that. And it was a really scary accident. And especially, you know, in this city, almost a year to the date after Kobe yeah. happened in a terrible accident. And, and you look at that, I mean, for his kids and everything, it's, I think everyone's just grateful that he survived. Um, I know I was, um, but that being said, golf is, is a sport that, um, treats its, uh, elder statesmen. Well, I mean, you look at the champions tour, you look at what Jim Furyk and Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson now that he's 50 do on that and they're playing out there every week and they're winning tournaments and then you know they can still go to the majors like there's no other sport where you can do that where you have this long sort of tail end of your career as you get older and you know age past um the sort of quote-unquote prime years um and you can still compete and get attention and you know we see bernard langer out there like leading the masters every year for a couple rounds um or at least in the hunt um so you know he would have he and he still will if he if he can amazingly pull it off and i agree with you if anyone's going to do it it's going to be him um you know still be relevant if not out there grinding on the pga tour each week yeah i think i think that's i think that's right i mean a comeback from Tiger, you know, to have him win the Masters one more time or something like that. That's not, I don't need that from a comeback from him. I I just want him to be out there again. And Tiger himself seemed like he had sort of, you know, certainly he had matured quite a bit since the first accident in, I think it was what, 2009, um, that, that sort of sent this cascading effect of, of, terrible things in in his life some self-inflicted some uh, you know that that happened to him and uh that you know the reaction after that was like a lot of scorn and it was one of the cases of you know 
society sort of turning, uh, building someone up and then tearing them down and just reveling in the process of, of tearing them down. Uh, and so this, the reaction to this accident was the polar opposite. It was all, you know, an outpouring of love and appreciation um, for him. And so I think that that spoke to not just how like our perspective on Tiger has, has changed over the years, but also like he has become more approachable. He has become more, you know, affable uh, and, and, um, you know, more friendly with the other players on tour rather than just being this kind of cold, stoic, you know, assassin type character that he was with with a lot of his peers. And everybody out there is younger than him. So I think maybe that's also plays a role in it that um, he has become the elder statesman. And there's, a, you know, a certain position of um, influence there that, that you kind of have uh, that maybe he didn't feel you know, he was competing directly with peers in his prime and just wanted to dominate them. Whereas now it's more about, you know, his place in the fabric of the game and being this kind of living legend uh, and and his place in the lineage of the all-time great players. And like, I don't know, uh, you know, the question is always going to be open as to whether he or Jack Nicholas is the greatest ever. And, you know, he he's still three majors behind and I know that that's not important right now, but I do think that that has always been sort of his motivating force in playing the game. So if he physically feels like he's not capable of adding to that or closing that gap, does that change his approach to golf? I think that's an interesting question too, is like a tiger woods that has come to terms with the fact that he'll never surpass Jack Nicholas. What kind of a different tiger woods is that? It's interesting because it's not that much different than the Serena conversation, right? I mean, golf right now is substantially different than golf when the previous generations were playing. Like tennis right now is substantially different than when Margaret Margaret Court was playing. Like maybe we don't need athletes to chase these records. Maybe as the media, we shouldn't be constantly talking about it. I know I constantly talk about it, so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean, this podcast alone, we, yeah, we right? talk about it. <laughs> Literally every week. We do, although we always talk about it in terms of that it doesn't matter. So, but maybe just talking about it is the bad part. But now, but, why do I feel that the the Jack Nicholas record matters more than the Margaret Court? That it was uh, conducted in more of a, a a modern sense, but it's not that modern. I mean, they were still playing with like wooden club heads back when Jack Nicholas played. You know, it is a radically different game. But for some reason, maybe it's the fact that Jack Nicholas is still like around and you know plays uh, to to your point Jeff about the generational aspect of like playing golf when you're 20 and playing it on a, on a high profile stage when you're like 80 that uh, that makes it impossible to kind of move past some of these um uh record setting legends in the same way that we would move past you know Margaret Court who is Margaret Court still alive I think she is but she's not like playing old-timer tennis or anything like that right, is there no. old-timer tennis i don't even know i think it's uh, just called tennis yeah no it's yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think you're I'm right i'm gonna play uh, a little but... old-timer tennis later <laughs> yeah you use We've wooden ra- rackets and yeah, yeah. you know kind of do that uh, yeah and maybe this is a conversation for for another day for if um at the time that tiger decides to retire from golf but I think it'd be an interesting conversation. Like, does Jack Nicholas ever 
you know, he he never hit as hard, as far as Tiger did in his prime, or as the you know the the, the kids are, are hitting it today. Um, the golf has really changed, and that's technology, that's focus on strength, and and the improvements in the athletes' bodies, and and how the game is approached. So maybe we can't really compare them. I don't know. That's my that's my uh, philosophy there. Anyway, clearly, <laughs> it's probably fair. All right, well, we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about the NBA. The NBA All-Star Game is this weekend, so we're just about at that halfway point of the season. And who is sitting there at the top of the standings? None other than the Utah Jazz obviously, as we were all expecting. Though they lost last night to Zion Williamson and the Pelicans, the Jazz have been dominating their competition. And just as important, they are currently tied for the lead in our NBA prediction ratings with a 17% chance of winning the finals. This has been a tricky season for the NBA. After the success of its bubble last summer, the non-bubble of this year has predictably, resulted in lots of game postponements and and players in and out of COVID protocols. On the Bill Simmons podcast, Jackie McMullen talked about why this unusual season might be helping propel Utah's incredible run. I I, I think they're interesting. I don't know um, if I'm ready to declare them an unbeatable team stampeding their way to the finals. But to your point, it's an unusual year. And one, one player breaks the rules or you know, someone in his family breaks the rules and he gets caught up in protocol and then he's out to dinner with four other guys on the team and you've lost half your starting lineup for 10, seven to 10 days and your season's over potentially. So Jeff, what do you make of that idea that a pandemic season might alter the landscape for certain teams? Does the fact that the Jazz have a little cushion right now maybe insulate them from any, you know, unforeseen COVID-related hardships? Yeah, Take the wins when you can get them, because I think we've seen it, it can go south very quickly for, for any team. We've seen, you know, look at what's happening in Toronto currently, and, you know, they're going to be at a significant disadvantage going forward. And you look at what happened with uh, Brooklyn in, in the various stints that Durant has had to sit out. Um, Brooklyn, you know, obviously still doing very well. But, um, yeah, it unlike any other season, you the, the future is a lot murky and a lot of things can change because of this. We've seen this happen in college basketball, you know, with Baylor particularly in the last week or so and saying that, you know, they had sort of had to sit off because of COVID for a while and came back and they weren't the same team. Um, we've seen this in the NHL, certainly, uh, where teams have missed, you know, two, two plus weeks of action and are now forced to play a lot of games, you know, back to back to make up and, and are missing players. So, yeah. I, I, this is a good year to pile up wins in the regular season for sure. I think also the chaos of the season or the uncertainty, like it adds to uh, the chances for a team that might have been unheralded, like you alluded to, Sarah, uh, from from preseason or a team that maybe it doesn't fit exactly the same template as what we think of as being a championship front runner type of team that you know, this might be the year in addition, probably with last year, you could kind of lump both of those together that, you know, it's a better chance for an untraditional champion to emerge than in the typical NBA season. It's interesting. Uh, Ben Cohen at the, at the wall street journal, my old colleague and friend uh, has an article up on the jazz and it talks about how they have the highest um, against the spread win rate 
um, on the betting market, 70, covering 70% of games, which is shocking because it's very rare that the best team in the league is also covering at a rate like that. And really, the interesting thing, I think the takeaway from that number is that the public just doesn't think much of the Jazz. And, um, you know, the betting lines are always a reflection of what the public thinks in addition to, like, you know, statistical um, models and all that, which which probably set the true line, but the lines that you actually you can wager on are, are sort of influenced by what the public thinks. And and that 71% tells you everything you need to know is that no one thinks the Jazz are good. And it's funny that um, that exists considering how much they're winning, but it really, I think it does come down to star power and not having um, Harden and Durant and Irving or LeBron and Anthony Davis and what you see in these other teams where, you know, the, the general perception from what we've seen from the NBA in the last, you know, five, 10 years is that you need that. You need those giant bold face names in your starting lineup to win. And, you know, it's not always the case. You, a team can find another way to win. So it's, I think it's actually great for the NBA if they, if they do it all this year, because I think it'll sort of maybe re- people will rethink um, team building and strategy and, and, and the best ways to go about this and then you don't need a very top-heavy roster to to compete at the highest level. Well, so that's that's a good segue. Let's talk about the star power and, and quantify that a little bit because we do have a, a methodology for quantifying it, which is yes, we really... Do. I mean, I feel like we have a methodology to quantify that. It should be 538's tagline, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so some guy named Nate Silver wrote a story a few years ago about he's, the level. He's one of your interns, right? He's one of my interns, yes. Um, he's our unpaid intern. He's been on the show a few times. You know, he yeah. does the grunt work for us. <laughs> yeah, he might be kind of, you know, that name might be familiar to our listeners. He wrote a story a few years ago about the levels of NBA stardom and like and how to quantify it. He argued that there are three levels worth different amounts of star points and you need at least four star points to win a title. So to break it down a little further, there's the alpha player, a player who's as good as the best player on a typical championship winning team. This is an MVP contender, one of the half dozen best players in the league. Those guys are worth three points each. Then there's the beta player as good as the second best player on a typical NBA champion. They're among the best players at their position, but they're not among the very best players in the league. They get two star points each. And then there's a gamma, someone as good as the third best player on a typical championship team. A gamma might be an all-star, but he usually won't make one of the three um, all NBA teams. Those players get one star point each. So, Okay, so using this framework, how would we rank the players on the Jazz? Do they have enough star points to win the finals, Neil? Yeah, so I uh, followed Nate's methodology and I used our Raptor uh, like rolling talent ratings, basically, which uh, take the players' preseason rating and then mix in their performance so far this year in proportion to how much they played uh, and then use the guidelines in Nate's piece to assign these. So his rules were... An alpha has to have a basically a raptor plus minus of six or higher. A beta has to have between a plus 3.5 and a plus six. And then a gamma has to have between a plus two and a plus 3.5. I also created a new category called deltas, which what? are one <laughs> between 1.25 and two. But I did not include these necessarily in the um, classic star points formula. Okay, so at four star points, because that's how many you need to win a title... You got the Sixers, who have one alpha and one gamma, 
the alpha is um, Joel Embiid, and the gamma is Ben Simmons. So how the tables have turned where um, we, we used to be very high on Ben Simmons, perhaps overly high, uh, and, and now he is just a gamma. Um, the Blazers and, and the Hawks, which is may, perhaps a little surprising in there, the Hawks have one beta and two gammas. I don't think anyone, the way they're playing right now and the fact that they just fired their coach, maybe they do not deserve to have four star points or be in that conversation, but uh, uh, if, if you look at the talent on hand between Trey Young, uh, John Collins, Clint Capella, uh, DeAndre Hunter, those are guys that are in that conversation. Moving on, at the five star points, you've got the Nuggets and the Raptors. Uh, with six star points, you've got the Lakers, Jazz, and Celtics. Interesting that the Celtics also are kind of in that death spiral right now, but they have a lot of name brand talent. And then with seven star points, which is the highest in the league, the Clippers, Nets, and Bucks. So it aligns a little bit with how we think of the tiers of teams. And and just to point, uh, put a fine point on it, uh, if you have four star points, traditionally you have a 2% chance of winning the title. If you have five, you traditionally have a 10% chance. If you have six, you have a 14% chance. And if you have seven, you have a 32% chance. So the teams with seven are the ones that are really the championship front runners on paper. So the Jazz in this conversation... They're not in that seven-point group, but they're in the six-point group. They have two betas, two gammas, and by my new accounting, they also have four deltas, but those don't count toward their points. But <laughs> they have more deltas than any of the other teams in the um, in at the uh, in that conversation of of uh, teams at the top of this tier list. And I think that speaks to that says a lot about why maybe we're skeptical of them. It's like. Should you get points for your deltas or not? That's the real question because a team built on deltas has a lot of pretty good but not like star level players and those can make you really good in the regular season but does that matter as much in the playoffs? I mean, I think I think that's an, an interesting question. I mean, I was looking at the 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 Raptor ratings for the you know, the the players on the team. So so the 8 of their 9 top minutes getters have positive raptors and like four of them are over plus three three of them are over plus four <laughs> you know mike conley has had this great season is and has been one of the the highest guys with the highest raptors he's he's at plus 9.5 gobert is at plus 6.4 jordan clarkson is at plus 4.7 and donovan mitchell is at plus three um also unsung hero hero george niang is at plus point two i just feel like everyone needs to know that um what that comes is. after delta because that's where he is epsilon. <laughs> epsilon um he's the epsilon of my heart um no so so i mean they do they have talent they have a lot of guys contributing in a lot of different ways we see a lot that that doesn't matter in the playoffs but I don't know. I mean, other there have there have been teams that have been that are deeper that we have discounted. You know, the the Raptors when they won it all. Now they had Kawhi, obviously they had a huge star there, but they were also a very deep team with a lot of players who did a lot of things well. And that was not something that maybe we like thought was a plus going into the playoffs. And then you know, our model kept loving them and they ended up winning it all. So I don't know. I mean, things are always our our understanding of the league is always changing, too. And so maybe the, the jazz will sort of rewrite that the book on that. 
All right. Aside from the Jazz, which teams have stuck out to you guys so far this season? Are these any of these other teams with uh, with lots of alphas? Uh, are we interested in any of them in particular? Uh, we, uh, this sounds like a conversation about the New York Knicks we're about to have, right? <laughs> For the first time in a long time. Hey, anything can happen. Now, the Knicks have no star points. None what whatsoever. is Randall? Randall's not a, a even a... Gamma? B? I mean, he's been amazing. He's like a... I, I give him honorary Delta status because he has honorary a 1.2. Honorary Delta status. He has a 1.2 rolling rating uh, and you need a 1.25. But I think we can we can put him in off of that. But really, between that and, and Mitchell Robinson, those are their two highest rated players by the, um, the rolling rating. Um, and I think that that's a little bit... You know, two Deltas... Or honorary deltas as your as your best two players are not necessarily championship caliber, but it's weird to see them um, succeeding. You know, yeah. I mean, it's always weird to see the Knicks succeeding. Just you know, with this core, I guess. Put it this way: if the playoffs started today, they would have home court in the first yeah. round. Yeah, I, that is I remarkable. Wonder... We're we're a significant way into the season. This is not the first week. I, I think. Is that where we've come in the world right now? Things are so upside down that the Knicks are good and we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> I think that might be true. Yeah. Well, the East is just strange this year because if you take away, I mean, the Sixers have been have been great. Brooklyn, obviously, you know, a huge threat and Milwaukee's actually surging at the moment, five in a row. But then after that it's like seven teams are all within a couple games of 500 so there's a real traffic jam behind that top three so and the knicks are right there in the middle of that traffic jam maybe in the front of that traffic jam but you know a couple losses and they're going to fall all the way down into out of playoffs so it's just it's a strange year we don't see that kind of log jam in the west at all yeah i uh i love the the bucks because they have your they have won five in a row after losing five in a row after winning five in a row they're like the definition of a streaky team <laughs> so maybe again the but regular still season 10 of the last 15 you know, sarah no i know i know you gotta <laughs> zoom out that's why yeah. when they lost their fifth game in a row everyone was like <gasps> you know panicking and it's like and then they rattle off five wins like <laughs> NBA regular season. What are we even doing? You got to find the right endpoints. Uh, I'd also like to shout out a team that I didn't mention in the in the tiers, but r- currently ranks third in ELO, and that's the Phoenix Suns, which is another yes. team that I think a lot of people were high on. I think we were pretty high on them going into the season. We we shouted them out in the um, the preview episode that we did, mm-hmm. uh, and they're twenty two and eleven. Uh, they've really surged. They've been the best team in the league probably over the past two weeks uh, in particular. To me that team they didn't show up on the radar of the star points uh, uh because they had one beta and four deltas four deltas that's the jazz um yeah yeah uh, didn't the jazz used to play at the delta center wasn't that what that uh, arena was called maybe that's um that's a sign of things uh of how team building works there but or, or not you know between booker <laughs> between chris paul chris paul is a beta in the in this construction uh and and guys like michael bridges cam johnson Cameron Payne all, all these guys are sort of also building it's it's like jazz light I think in some ways uh it's smooth jazz uh where oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> where where you have Good like one. um you know uh, a player with a proven ability to kind of elevate a team like Chris Paul who I think I called a um a one man like let's make the playoffs ticket <laughs> you just get Chris Paul and it's like okay we're gonna make the playoffs now automatically um yeah. but but surround him with a lot of 
you know, good players, this is what you can get out of it. But they're another team where I don't know what their playoff potential is because they are not built traditionally. But uh, and and this is like you said, Sarah, this is such a weird regular season. I I just don't know. It might be the the uh, most confusing and least predictable or predictive regular season in NBA history in some ways, um, which is really saying something because the NBA regular season has lost a lot of predictive power over the past decade. I now like I think we know enough about these teams. Let's just see the playoffs. I want to see I want to see meaningful basketball ball now uh over the regular season already i'm always over that nba regular season just only playoffs all the time that's all my... the players are too so you're in good company <laughs> <I know. laughs> me and the players we're on the same page all right we could leave this here for now we'll take a quick break and be back for our rabbit hole of the week at 538 we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I have something for you guys. So Sunday began my favorite time of year, spring training. I know I've waxed poetic about spring training to you all before, but it really is the most wonderful way to emerge from a long, hard winter. I'm not going this year, unfortunately, but fans in Florida and Arizona can go. Stadiums are operating at diminished capacity with social distancing enforced between groups of people. I did go last year. In fact, it was the last sporting event and just about the last normal thing in general that I did before everything shut down. So I was one of the relatively few people who got to see baseball in person last season. Hopefully that won't be the case this year and lots and lots of people will be able to see baseball before the end of the season. Let's go. I know. (laughs) Let's do this. So games started up again on Sunday and uh, true to form, I I listened to the play-by-play of my Minnesota Twins. There was no TV broadcast, which is why I was playing it old school and listening to the radio. Uh, They were facing the the Boston Red Sox in an exciting seesaw affair that saw the Twins ultimately prevail seven to six. This game had the usual spring silliness, like, you know, the starters being replaced quickly by like a parade of players who even I did not recognize. But there are other wrinkles new for this year. The Twins game on Sunday was only seven innings long, which will be the scheduled length through the first two weeks of games, though games can be further shortened to just five or six innings if the managers agree, or they could even be lengthened to nine innings. Imagine that. (laughs) There's another bit of silliness that sent me down this rabbit hole. So the bottom of the second inning started off inauspiciously enough for the Twins. Boston starting pitcher Nathan Nivaldi struck out sweet swinging prospect Alex Kirilov. Nivaldi then gave up a single and hit the following batter with a curveball that got away. And then his day was done. He was replaced by Red Sox reliever Caleb Simpson. Then the wheels kind of came off. Simpson gave up a walk to load the bases, then a run-scoring single that scored a second runner because of an error. Then he walked two more, which walked in a run. Then, with the bases loaded, Miguel Sano hit a double that scored two more, giving the Twins a 5-1 to lead. And then, the inning was over. That leadoff strikeout was the only out recorded in the inning. Before the Sano at bat, the Red Sox told the umps that that would be it. They would be done with the inning after that no matter what happened. So this year in spring training only, MLB has relaxed official baseball rule 5.09E. This is an official baseball rule. 
<laughs> that apparently sets the length of the inning. So this uh, now MLB is allowing the manager of the defensive team and whatever half of the inning it is to end the inning before there are three outs, as long as the plate appearance has concluded and the pitcher has thrown at least 20 pitches. The idea here is to give players the work they need, but not overtax them. And with slightly fewer players available than usual, teams don't want to run out of pitchers. Although pitchers who have been taken out of a game are allowed to re-enter this spring training, which I kind of love. We should have more of that. So the idea of ending an inning early in the middle of a game is kind of wild. We're, we're used to innings ending early in walk-offs, right? Before a third out is recorded. But that also ends the game. Even in situations when an inning ends early without a walk-off event, like when it's raining, that still goes hand in glove with the game actually ending. I can't think of any other situation where an inning might end before the third out with the game continuing. Can you guys think of any other time that might happen? The closest I can think of is there are like a number of uh, instances. I think Secret Base did a great video on this recently of plate appearances ending in, in not in the prescribed uh, moments. In other words, like players drawing five balls uh, because mm. they were not walked on the fourth one because the umpire forgot the count or walking on a third ball uh, because they they forgot that it was uh, that that it was not the fourth one. So. There have been plate appearances that ended uh, outside the rules, but not games. Also, what number rule did you say that the was about the length of the game was like rule five? They didn't. Five. They didn't get to that <laughs> that detail about the the length of the game. It took them five rules to get to that point. Five point. What are numbers one two. through four? I know. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should dig into that. <laughs> so, like this this rolling the inning situation is happening all over the league. Of course, in spring training. Um, you know, lots of teams have done it. Some teams have done it twice in one game. Yeah, the Red Sox did it twice. I saw Garrett Richards had it happen against the Braves. <laughs> yeah, but there there was one fun other funny instance that I saw that sort of that sort of stuck out to me. So Zach Gallen, a pitcher for the Diamondbacks, he started his spring training work against the Rockies with a three pitch strikeout. Then he faced Chris Owings, who battled for a nine pitch walk that included fouling off four pitches. Then Gallen walked the next batter on six pitches, but got the second out, a fly out after just two pitches. But he was up to 20 pitches then. And so the D-backs rolled the inning. And then they proceeded to trot Gallon out again for the bottom of the second. That seems wrong to me. Like, if you're going to end an inning, the pitcher shouldn't get to come back. That seems not quite in the spirit of the rule to me. Yeah, I what mean, a cheat code that yeah, is for your ERA, I guess. Right. Like, if, you're, if the goal is to not tax a pitcher more than 20 pitches, then he shouldn't then pitch another 20 pitches the next inning, which is what Gallon did in the second. So... This situation won't happen in real games, obviously, probably, hopefully. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. What if the it, way things are going, though, right, I don't know. I know. And, like, what yeah, if it... We're done. Right. What if it did happen? Like, all of the, the things we use to measure a game informally would, like, sort of be destroyed. Like, like plate appearances, right? Like, you have a rough estimation of the number of plate appearances per player, per game that makes sense if your team is getting no hit you know three obviously if your team is scoring a you know a healthy number of runs they'll get like five played played appearances in a game so like in the twins game on sunday if a pitcher is imploding then even if 
you don't get all three outs in that inning, you're probably still getting a lot of plate appearances because the pitcher is imploding. So it still seems normal. In the Rockies case, they didn't get any runs out of that inning against against Zach Gallon. So they only sent up four batters for those two outs. So they definitely could have been in line for more plate appearances and, you know, runs in that game. Just out of curiosity, I wondered what the fewest number of plate appearances was for a team in an official game, figuring it would be it would have been in a game, you know, called for weather. And and it was in a one zero win over the Kansas City Royals in Baltimore on July 30th, 1971. The Orioles recorded only 13 plate appearances. The game was called after the top of the fifth. So the Orioles only batted four times and they only got one hit. And that one hit was a solo home run by Frank Robinson. 13 plate appearances and a win. That is wild. Meanwhile, on Sunday, the Rockies offense against the Diamondbacks was was just fine. They scored five runs in the eight innings they played. They racked up a healthy 39 plate appearances. Likewise, the Twins had 32 plate appearances in their seven innings, despite losing that out. So, Baseball probably has nothing to worry about for now with this tiny rule wrinkle that is, again, only specific to spring training. Although I got to say, all that uh, talk about this happening in official games and ruining our stats is making me feel very anxious. <laughs> I know, I know. I feel very uncomfortable right now. Well, you're going to love this this last thing too, Neil. Oh, no. So so though the Twins were the home team on Sunday and were ahead going into the bottom of the seventh inning, the, the agreed upon last inning, they still batted. So that's another difference during spring training games. They're going to go ahead and, and have the, the home team bat even if they're winning at the bottom of the last inning. So they ended the game, the Twins did, by bouncing into a double play. That is not uncommon. Since 2000, the Twins have hit into 75 game-ending double plays, according to Baseball Reference. But on Sunday, for the first time when that happened, they actually won the game. <laughs> so that was my my, uh, my little spring trading rabbit hole. Uh, I would like the idea of them ending the game on a double play where they don't lose. That's a new a new thing, and I could, I could be on board for that, <laughs> if not the other changes. <laughs> Are you guys, have you watched any spring training or listened to any spring I training? I haven't. I, I haven't. But I, I didn't even know about that until you said it. It's fascinating. Um, <laughs> it's just, I'm sort of curious because I've never been to spring training. When you were at spring training games, how much is the crowd in general or you like interested in the actual outcome? Like the the, the win or the loss? Um, I mean, the, those crowd cheers and boos. No. Did they really boo? I mean, I, you know. But if it's like the a only when it's game, the Astros. Are, are the people yeah. staying to the end and they vested in who wins? That's my question. No. People no. are in, okay. it, like, and then games in general, like the idea is to sit in the sun and drink a beer and watch baseball. So <laughs> you're, you're, you know, do you're people leave early? That. Is it, is it generally people leave early because all the stars are out of the game and, you know, who cares? Um, I have left early because I'm going to another baseball game later in the day. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think people don't care that much. I think people will still leave early to beat traffic no matter what, because that is what people do. And it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I, I do think regular season should. It, and maybe this has been discussed. There should be. Don't you feel like there should be a mercy mercy rule of some kind? Like some of these games are ridiculous there. I was looking it up. Um, because I was curious, there was a on September 9th last year during the regular season, the Brewers beat the Tigers 19 nothing, 
and the Braves beat the Marlins 29 to 9. Oh, yeah. I remember that game. Um, yeah. And I believe one Marlins pitcher gave had 13 earned runs in that game. To me, when you get to this shenanigans in the last couple innings where you got like position players trying to pitch, just call it. And no, it's... no, that's fun. No, don't, don't, don't call it. I want to see. I want to see the right fielder it? in the game on the mound. Come on. Oh, and then they get hurt. Like no, they don't get hurt. That the kids can say go. <laughs> Maybe that's just fine. Uh, <laughs> that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like that part. You know, I mean, the team can always just like forfeit if they really don't want to keep I, playing. Look, I, I'm all I'm generally with it, but the fact that they have to go back out there the very next day and play again, to me, I would be like, I'm fine ending this one a little early. Just me. <laughs> yeah, I would say they should find the thresholds after five, six, and seven innings, uh, at which a a lead has a 100 percent win probability or 99.9% or whatever and then give the the losing team the option to be mercy ruled if they're down by silly. that much no if after i'm those playing checkpoints no if i'm the, if i'm the winning team and i'm playing the same guys the next day i want to tax their bullpen that's part of baseball that's what i like it's fun it's good there's strategy there's long term strategy too not just in game strategy don't you guys now listen? I thought you guys were my allies in leaving baseball am. rules alone. I really am. I, I'm just carving out one exception yeah. when a team is down by 15 plus runs and we're talking about the final three innings. I feel like that team, it's getting late, can be like, we've had enough. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, send that to Rob Manfred and see what he says. He'd be all for less baseball, so I'm sure that'd be fine. Okay, I'm going to end that there before I get myself in trouble. Fire off one last shot and end the podcast. Yep, exactly. (laughs) All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.